This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Right after the bat, I will apologize for uh, the tone of voice, <laughs> the timber of it, I guess, for that matter, too. I'm uh, dealing with one of those epic head colds that I think everybody else has had over the last little while, and I uh, came on full force. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we will soldier on, as we always do on this program, and uh, we've got a number of incredible guests to talk to a number of issues. Right now, I want to talk about the LRT issue. Uh, when I was up in Ottawa over the weekend... There's a great big gaping hole just outside of our hotel, of course, uh, in front of the Chateau Rideau, and, uh, Chateau Laurier, rather, which, of course, is a part of the LRT project. So that is uh, moving on quite nicely. Uh, there have been some blips along the way, and uh, a lot of people are comparing that system. I'm not so sure you can do that. The one in Ottawa is much more complex. But one consensus, consensus issue that we had here was whether or not the HSR, the Hamilton Street Railway, who currently operates our transit system should also operate and maintain the new LRT system. City Council voted uh, to ask the province to do that. Only two people descended on City Council with that vote, so there was widespread support on Council for it. Well, yesterday, the uh, the province and uh, Metrolinx actually answered the city's request, and they said, sure, you can do that, but we don't think you should. There are certainly ramifications to this that I'm not so sure that some councillors even understood. Some maybe did understand, and it seemed to suit uh, some of their agendas uh, quite nicely. Joining us to talk about this is John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. John, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I suspect I'm doing a little better than you are. Well, lozenges, a lot of hot water, and uh, you know you know the, the protocol. We'll follow this whole thing. Fisherman's friend. Yeah, I'm <laughs> my best friend right now for the next couple of days. Yeah. Were you surprised by the uh, the announcement uh, that uh, guys go ahead and do that if you want, but uh, you know, watch out what happens. Watch what you wish for. I guess is really the message here. Yeah, I I can't say I was I was particularly surprised. I'm, um, you know, it was something that uh, we've seen in other communities, uh, Ottawa and Toronto, where. You know, really, when you look at what's going on in Toronto, not not only on the Eglinton LRT line, but when you look at that King Street streetcar um, that they've been talking about, they've just redone the routes. I mean, that's an LRT. That's not a streetcar. Mm-hmm. It's a train. So, you know, TTC is operating and, and I believe, maintaining uh, that system. And uh, also uh, in Ottawa, as, as you mentioned, uh, that system there. So you know, it's not a, it's not out of the realm of possibility that that Hamilton would would be okayed for, um, at least operating the system. Although, uh, you know, some of the reports that we saw from uh, you know some of these problems with uh, buses being missing and uh, drivers uh, calling in sick and you know almost a twenty percent sick rate, um, it didn't come at a very good time in terms of. Uh, the uh, HSR's image as be, as being a competent operator. Let's face it; um, the HSR appears to have lots of problems right now. And we talked with Eric Tucker, who's the head of the uh, the ATU, the union, of course, that uh, represents the HSR. And at the time, Eric uh, was quite candid. He said, "Well, there's a problem here with underfunding and and understaffed uh, resources, and people are getting tired and getting ill, etc." And I can relate to that, and especially on a day like this, I get that. But on the other hand, uh, if you take over this LRT project, is that going to make everything better? I mean, I, I don't see that there's going to be a big whack of money coming into this right now. It, it's, it's almost like a, a couple that's having marital problems saying, let's have a baby, then everything's going to be great again. Uh, yeah. I don't, I'm not so sure it is. 
No, I, 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 I agree, and when you read the letter, I had a chance to read it last night and, and to read the staff report. I mean, they really are putting up a lot of red flags uh, around potential unnamed uh, liabilities that we might run into. Uh, I, I just I, I don't have a real sense of how council's going to vote on this. Uh, when they insist, you know, when when it came down to the crunch of use it or lose the money, uh, council caved in. Uh, on this issue, uh, they're being given a bit of a compromise. They're they're being told, well, you can you can you can drive the LRTs, but uh, there are risks associated with it. But it looked to me like um, Metrolinks had really dug in its heels on the maintenance issue. And so now I guess it really has thrown it back into council's court. Are they going to blink or or not? Um, our experience uh, with what happened earlier this year is that they tend to blink, but we'll see. Now, you've, you've read the letter. I saw the overview of the letter. And, and this, the question I had weeks ago when council first uh, decided to pursue this is that I still have, and I want to get some clarity if you can add to this, John. Uh because city council voted some years ago that, okay, we're supportive of LRT as long as it doesn't cost Hamilton taxpayers a nickel. Uh, that's paraphrasing, but that was the essence of the of the, uh, the vote at that time. By doing this, are they not ex- exactly saying, okay, we're reversing our trend in this? Because right now, if they're going to have to pay for operating costs, then that's going to go on the tax base. Uh, I think that whole business about not costing us a nickel has pretty, pretty much gone out the window, Bill. Uh, I really do. I, I think when council was confronted last summer with the prospect of losing the money, uh, they they basically caved in. So the, the notion that it isn't going to cost us a nickel, I mean, we already know from Metrolink's reports that the operating costs of the LRT are going to be significantly greater than than what they're paying now. And unless the, and and the, the the financial case for that is based that all of a sudden a whole bunch of people that aren't riding the buses now are going to start riding LRT. If that doesn't materialize, then the operating costs that the city's going to experience are going to be uh, in the millions. And uh, so, you know, either council's aware of that or if they're not aware of that, they should be. I mean, they've sat through God knows how many of these 12-hour meetings getting information. So it's almost certain that the operating costs, um, at least in the initial going with the LRT, are going to be higher, and that's going to come out of the tax base. Yeah, but when the premier made the announcement of McMaster, it seems like 100 years ago now, John, uh, own, operate, and maintain an LRT system. That was was the phrase that was used at the time, and it looks like the city's letting the province off the hook now. Well, I I think the other thing that that we, you know, as as the, uh, like one of these old movies where the pages peel off the calendar, we're getting, uh, you know, we're now only uh, probably six months away from a writ being dropped for a provincial election. Patrick Brown was in town uh, over the summer, and I happened to be at a a meeting he was having with some stakeholders, and, and I asked him the question. I said, do we lose out on the money if we decide we want to go a different way than LRT? And he made it very clear that Hamilton would get its share of the money. And um, you'll recall that um, there was a question put to our city treasurer uh, during this raging debate over the summer about if Hamilton was not deemed to be in the GTHA. You know how they tack that H on somewhere mm-hmm. along the line. I, I don't recall the announcement. I just recall the acronym changed. But if we were, say, London, Ontario, 
how much of the transit funding would we be eligible for uh, just just on the basis of allocation based on population? And I think the treasurer said we'd be in for somewhere between 600 and 700 million. So it's not like, uh, you know, it's a billion or zero. Uh, the, the real number is it, is it a billion or six or seven hundred million? And, and Brown made it pretty clear that, that he would support Hamilton uh, getting the money unconditionally. But with so, that, that, that so in that's mind. That's looming, I guess, is all I'm saying. Is, yeah. You know, you can, you can say, well, that, that's dependent on a change in government, and, you know, everybody can make their own judgment as to how likely that's going to be. But that's, that's a position that's sitting out there, and it's, a position, and it's going to be put to the test in, in less than a year. It's no secret, though, that there are some people on council who voted for this uh, with the idea that this was going to be the poison pill that was actually going to kill the project because the province was going to come back and say you can't do it or you can't afford to do it, whatever the case might be. Does this give uh, a, a, a win be in, into the sales of those people right now? I mean, are we going to see some councilor bailing out on this? I mean, you talked about the provincial election. Just a couple of months after that, there's a municipal election, and there's still an awful lot of animosity about this issue. Well, we, we saw the forum poll, and it, it was pretty clear that uh, there was a large number of people in the community opposed to LRT. You can argue whether it was a majority or a plurality, but there were, there were more people against it than for it. I don't think that's changed. We have, uh, you know, we've lost three months here where, where the issue of whether the, the L, uh, HSR was going to be the operator, there, there's been kind of a radio silence for about three months. That certainly hasn't given the project momentum. If anything, it's, it's uh, kind of been a bit of a drag on the whole thing. So I, I don't know. Um, and then, then you have this other issue that, came, that popped up over the weekend uh, where uh, CBC Hamilton had a story that, that there was kind of an ad hoc committee had been formed um, to, to deal directly with Queen's Park on transit. I tried to get some more information on that, and uh, it, it sounds like there was something uh, it certainly wasn't a council sanction committee, but I mean, it's nothing new to have people freelancing uh, all over the place. But oh, come on, that never happens in Hamilton. But one person I talked to said that, that the you know the genesis of even talking about having that kind of a committee was that there was a feeling uh, had been for quite a while that Queens Park wasn't getting the straight goods uh, on the mood in Hamilton regarding LRT. So uh, just the fact that this thing was being rooted about suggests that there are people on council who voted for the LRT when the showdown occurred this summer that are still trying to find ways to maybe uh, even at this stage uh, change the whole thing. But here's here's a problem, and, and you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, John, about about the operating costs, and now it looks like you and I as taxpayers are going to get on, we're, we're going to be on the hook for that, and that's, that's a problem I think for an awful lot of people. But the Metrolinx folks said, look, right off the bat, this is going to cost you about a million bucks more. It didn't say that all in a million bucks. That's the start. So yeah. how deep do we go here? Well, I don't think anybody knows. And, uh, I, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a sense, I think, after that, that really uh, cathartic meeting uh, this summer that, okay, the issue had finally been put to bed. Council has voted. Uh, we're going to have LRT. But there were a couple of councillors who said, you know, the, the final, final uh, step in this process is the presentation of the operating and maintenance agreement. 
And uh, unless the numbers are fudged, I think when that operating agreement is presented to council, it's going to show uh, some costs that uh, councillors up until now have said they would not be prepared to absorb. So we we have yet another challenge, I think, uh, on the horizon, uh, depending on when we get around to uh, designating uh, who's going to be the contractor, who's going to be the consortium that's going to build this thing. Let me throw a little gasoline onto the fire here. We'll talk about this after 930 uh, in a couple of seconds. But uh, if they decide to go forward on this, do you area rate LRT? I I don't think you can. Uh, In my mind, uh, if I was living in one of those suburbs, I'd say give me some buses and then we'll talk about paying for them. But how, how do you make people pay in advance for... Uh, and especially if it, if it was attached strictly to LRT, uh, it's a service that will never benefit those communities uh, other than the possible displacement of buses uh, up into those areas. I, I just don't know how you can present a bill to people without providing the service. I, I just don't know how you do that. Uh, I think you'd have to phase in um, better bus service, and uh, you know, and, and then I think there'd have to be a period at which people you know, start adapting to it and start using the service. Uh, just very difficult for me to see how, how you could just walk in, start area rating and saying uh, the improved transit is on its way, folks. Yeah, but that's going to open up another kind of room there. If you, if you even get into that discussion about, well, the folks in Waterdown and Dundas and Stony Creek won't have to pay for it, uh, then what about the people on Hamilton Mountain? What about uh, the other jurisdictions that don't have a direct impact with LRT? Where it seems that we're heading back to square one in some ways. Well, you know, and there there are certain services where I think we 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 accept that we all share them: policing, fire, uh, education. I think those services have such a broad impact on society that even though you may be a senior, you no longer have kids in the system. Uh, you, you don't object to paying your education taxes. But when you start getting into things like transit, uh, especially in a community where transit usage is really very low, extremely low, uh, transit usage in Hamilton is roughly equal to what the King Street streetcar does in Toronto. One line. And our whole transit system is doing roughly the same, around 20 million uh, passengers a year. So you start getting into those kind of issues, and you say, well, does that qualify as one of these universal, sacred services that we all acknowledge that we need to pay for? And I I think it's going to be a tougher sell. Especially uh, with an election just on the horizon. Oh, yes. Absolutely. John, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Area rating on transit is, is not a new issue. It's been going on since amalgamation, so 17 years now. And uh, councils have, well, tried to deal with it. Uh, it, it i got to tell you, uh, when it first came up and they talked about simply everybody was going to pay for everything, no matter what, and area rating was not going to be applied to transit, that was as, as close as I think we've seen to Hamilton Council actually coming to blows with it because the debates got very, very heated. And some councillors are now telling us that, well, you know, there was a bit of a nudge-nudge, wink-wink deal to not even bring this issue up until after the next municipal election. Well, Councillor Samarula says, no, 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 no. We're in a crisis situation. We have to look at all options. Uh, Samarula joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Sam, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, likewise, though. Thank you. You uh, have been a strong apo- or proponent of, of public transit all along. You describe this as a crisis situation. Talk to us about your thoughts on that. 
Well, but we're in a situation right now where, historically speaking, the area rating debate has been very, very contentious, as you've mentioned. And the first attempt that I made to talk about this issue uh, back about 10, 12 years ago was shut down almost immediately as a result of the lack of courage of, firstly, like the editorial board at the Hamilton Spectator and other people in the, uh, considered to be the elites of this community from the extension of the transition board, which really, fortunately, over the last 20 years, I and among others have able to clean house and ensure that it's representative democracy again. Having said that, uh, we're in a situation where public transit is really at a crisis, and we've never been in this type of crisis in, in decades. So we have a situation now where, as a result of the area rating, and at one time there was, a, I guess, some merit to, to try to mitigate some of the taxation in the suburban area as a result of the assessment growth and price of homes in those areas and the correlating market value assessment that leads to increases of taxes. And in the inner city at that time, we were, when I was first elected, we were in a decline. We were not any longer. We're going through a renaissance. So in essence, the inner city now, as a direct result of a lot of hard work, including yourself, uh, Bill, we've come a long way. Now there's a reversal of fortune going on. This is the time to talk about area rating. Granted, I did say and gave my word that we wouldn't deal with the issue this term, but I didn't say we wouldn't discuss the issue this term, and the motion that I brought forward was simply looking and studying the issue, not implementing the issue, and some people are very disingenuous in using that as a means of not supporting what, in essence, is simply a study and not an implementation. So when you, when you take away all the nonsense and, and really the, the, the irrelevant, non-factual components of the debate, you really have to look at the foundation. At this time, we have taxes going down in a suburban area. We have a complete reversal at present that we had 15, 17 years ago as a result of the renaissance and the true growth of the inner city. The future of the city is the inner city. It's not the suburban area. That's the 1950s mentality of trying to build out. We're now building up, and as you can see throughout the city, from, from the Red Hill Creek Expressway, and all of the condominiums that are being built downtown, to all of the developments in my area. I have over a billion dollars of work from a private and public cent, uh, sector, shovels to the ground this term. Over a billion dollars. Unprecedented, just in Ward 4. When you look at the rest of the inner city, we are, we are flying. We're in great shape. So this is the time we look at it and say, listen, taxes are mitigated in a suburban area because of this growth. This is the time we look at area rating, because when you really look at it, you know what it actually means, Bill? It means an extra $20 approximately per household in a suburban area. People become violent, literally violent, over $20 per household because they don't want the inner city to see any benefit from the area rating. And that's what it basically is, Bill, and I'll explain why. Because when we implemented area rating, they said... They, meaning the suburban representative, said as long as your residents don't see a tax decrease, then we're okay with it. So we had to come up with a very creative scheme between myself, who brought in the, the, um, the public works or the capital aspect, Councilor Collins and Councilor Powers, to say, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to eliminate area rating as it pertains to uh, recreation, and we're going to allocate those monies per ward but it needs to be spent on infrastructure, capital infrastructure, roads, sidewalks, and so on. 
So affordable housing as well. So that's what was developed. But it was developed in a means, almost mean spirited in that because we're, are the suburban areas going to see an increase of taxes and you're going to see a decrease in taxes, we don't want that to happen. So if that's not bullying, I don't know what is. When you have, when you have this, this and the other component, though, is I supported this word boundary scenario that we're, we're talking about. I supported Ward 14. I supported the suburbs, knowing the sensitivity of it. And what do we get in return in the inner city? We get opposition to talking about an idea when I stood with them in supporting or supporting the non-elimination of Ward 14. So, you know, the, the real double standard in this city has been really prevalent for a number of years. And if they focused on people that actually did something rather than had their head up their butt, they would actually be reporting on issues that mean something to the city rather than their irrelevant, so, and becoming more and more irrelevant, uh, news, news uh, printing. Sam, I remember during those days of that inflammatory debate about area rating, uh, your colleague and my colleague at the time, the, the late Councillor Bernie Morelli, I think was, was very uh, direct in his comments about this. And he said, well, I think the analogy used was, if you have to pull a Band-Aid off, you rip it off. You don't take it off a little bit at a time. And if you pass this, meaning area rating, and he warned the council at that time, you're never going to get rid of it because people are never going to say, okay, take it away now. So is, is this council paying for the sins of a previous council? Absolutely. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, buts. There's a lack of leadership. But you know what? That lack of leadership is not only on council's fault. We had the, the editorial board, the Hamilton Spectator, endorsing the transition board, moronic endeavors. And all too well, they were coming against us, those of us that were focused on representative democracy. And you know what? Go back to the archives. If I pull out all the archives over the last 20 years, I can make them look like clowns. They've been wrong almost 100% of the time on every single issue they've ever attacked myself or others on council who have stood up for this community. And that, I say, is a disgrace. So where do you go on this now? I know a number of councillors got very upset that you even brought this up right now, but uh, well, we, you, you and I have discussed this in the past. The, and the, I've, I've always said that, look, there's nothing wrong with getting information. You don't have to vote on it, but there's nothing wrong with, with, with gathering information on a topic so that the councillors and maybe even more importantly, the citizens can be informed. So, you know what really is quite humorous? Like, Councillor Skelly, I have a great deal of respect for her. I like her personally. But I, I've made a couple of comments, and, and she's appalled by the comments. And if, if she thinks that's tough, and now she's running for Queen's Park. She's got another thing coming if she gets there. She's got to get over it. And uh, I know she's a neophyte. She's only been there for a cup of coffee. But these types of issues are serious and ones that have impact throughout the city. So, you know, we're, it's a democ democracy. It's messy. It's, it needs to be. If it's not, we're not doing our job. And if people are taking stuff personally, so be it. I take everything non-personally. Say what you will about me. I got things to do. I've done them, and I will continue to do them in the future. So you've asked staff to come back with numbers. Are you going to get council support for that? Well, at this point, uh, because um, it's been referred to public works, I've spoken to staff. They and I put the motion together. That's the other flabbergasting thing, is that what led to uh, a, a lot of the contention with me was that if people were actually in attendance at the meeting. When I served notice, when I served notice of the motion, I asked Debbie, what do you think of this? my revisiting this initiative that I brought forward 10 years ago. And she said, any time that we can increase resources, I fully support it. And that would increase resources. So I served notice before I even served the formal notice based on staff's consultation. And subsequent to that, I also consulted with Dan McKinnon. We were working collectively on this issue. If there was an issue with 
with work schedules or time frames or whatever nonsense was coming up or spewing out of people who weren't even in attendance at the meeting, then we then at the end of the day, that's the frustrating component is that they're talking without actually doing the research, not reading the motion, and then somehow spinning this around to try to suit their own needs. It is it was not factual. Their whole argument and nobody holds them to account. That's my point, is that frankly if people are asking questions that they should have known because the answers are present on the meeting they weren't they were absent for, the issue is no longer the issue itself. It's the fact that they weren't there to listen to the answer then waste everybody's time at council. That's the, the, the level of lack of accountability we have in this city. Now, I can do the job of holding council accountable and also bringing forward the most prolific amount of uh, motions in the history of this city. But you know what? Is it my job to do that? It's the media's job to do it. And frankly, they're becoming more and more irrelevant because of the lack of uh, accountability that I actually oppose or impose in this city. Well, some. I, I would put a qualifier on that because we're talking yeah. about it right now. Oh, absolutely. Here's, here's the problem, though, so far as I can see, is, is that there are always going to be people that are just going to dig in their heels and say, no, we don't want to do this. But, you know, we've talked in the past about council, to their credit, has invested more money in public transit in the last four or five years than they have in the previous probably 10 or 15. But the ridership is down, so it's not working. So why would you continue with the same kind of policy? What's my point exactly? It's broken. It needs to be fixed. We need to look at very radical issues in order to get a radical response back. It, we're, we're spending a lot of money to simply repeat errors and not even improve the frontline service. It, it clearly illustrates that, that there's, this, there's this systemic lack of courage to do the right thing. And one thing, I love your hate me, I do what I believe is in my best interest and that of the city of Hamilton because the people I represent is why I'm there. So whether whether they vote for me or not, at this point in my career, is irrelevant. I will explain to them why it's in their best interest, why I need to help them help themselves. That's what leadership is called. Unfortunately, there, there is a tendency to, to truly applaud mediocrity as opposed to leadership. And, and, and that's why you have the senatorial board, who truly, if you need term limitation, the senatorial board, the Hamilton Spectator, needs a limitation to their term. Well, I, I don't want to get into a discussion about the Hamilton Spectator and their editorial oh, I board. I, I, I want to talk about what's council's job here. And, and, and I would suggest that what, what I'm concerned about here is, is their endorsement of the status quo. Uh, everybody talks around the table every time you have a discussion about transit and says, yeah, we need to fix this, we need to fix that. Nobody seems to have any substantive ideas as to how to do it. Here's well, I, yours. I don't know whether yours is right or wrong, but it's an idea that at least deserves uh, some consideration and some discussion. Well, you know, there are layers, there are layers of ideas in that motion that were very, was very thorough very, and very complex to some degree. But there was an, there was an incremental approach as well as a radical approach. Uh, unfortunately, people end up always focusing in on the nonsense as opposed to the actual facts and the actual substance of the argument. And, and that's really a sad component, and it'll continue happening. Folks, this thing never change because history tends to repeat itself when you have lack of accountability and people lacking the focus in on what they need to as opposed to what they want to for whatever personal reason. Sam, when are we going to get rid of this idea about kicking issues down the, the road and saying, well, the next council can deal with it, the next? It's got to be off. I know it's frustrating for me as a taxpayer. Well, again, Bill, there, it's everything, everyone's working towards the next election. And there was a time, I guess, in my life that I could probably be seen as guilty accordingly. 
I'm beyond that. I have 30 years of service right now, effective January 2nd, 2018. Whatever I do right now, I don't do it for headlines because I frankly don't give a damn because I don't need them. Secondly, I don't do it for any other reason except for what I believe in. And everything that I do, I believe in, even when I was doing things in order for the next election. The bottom line is this. If you don't have the will to be courageous, to make the necessary decisions, nothing will ever change, particularly when... The, the mainstream media allows for it or condones it or ignores it and focuses it on nonsense. And that's what we have. We have a focus on nonsense and a lack of focus on substance. And as a result, it will just continue until something drastic occurs. And in my case, I think, it, I think the drastic nature of this is the implosion of our public transit system, which really would be a sad state of affairs. Well, and we've seen this happen in, in the discussions in the previous number of years about this as well, because as you mentioned, this is not the first time there's been a discussion about area rating. It's not the first time there's been a, a discussion about eliminating transit fares to try to encourage ridership. Yet yeah, every time when push comes to shove, councilors kind of say, ah, we don't want to talk about it right now. Well, again, it's because when I first brought forward the area rating motion 12 years ago, keep in mind, there was a concerted effort to not deal with it, and they were, they, we were seen as the dark side in trying to do it. Uh, now suddenly some of these people have come around, and I, I go back to the archives I've been collecting, and I was, I was criticized heavily for bringing forward area rating, for, for, being, such a, for being so disruptive and for, for being this and for being that. And now suddenly it's as if some of these mainstream morons are thinking, now it's the time to do the, lead, the, the thing. You know what? It should have been them then. That's what true leadership would have been not destructive that was leadership they were just too stupid to realize it we'll see how your uh, council colleagues respond to this uh, and uh, certainly the motion i guess is going to be coming forward at uh, public works uh, it should be a lively debate sam thanks as always appreciate the time today likewise both have a good one you too ward four councillor sam marula you're listening to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml there is a provincial election coming up uh, of course next spring and uh, we'll, we'll talk about the public opinion polls and where people seem to be leaning right now. It's a very fluctuating picture for the most part. But uh, one of the criticisms against Ontario Progressive Conservative leader Patrick Brown over the last number of months is that uh, there's, there's no substance to what he's saying. He bounces back and forth on issues. He vacillates. He changes his mind. And he said, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to have a policy convention and uh, you'll every, everything is going to be straightened away. Well, that happened this past weekend. And uh, they unveiled what they call their their roadmap to victory. Their words, uh, of course, for the upcoming provincial election. It's called the People's Guarantee. And uh, it's a kind of a different approach. Uh, instead of the usual dossier-like uh, document, it, uh, you know, with just a cover page and, and lots and lots of printed pages, uh, it's got a picture of Patrick Brown on the front. It's glossy. It's got lots of pictures. It looks like a People magazine as opposed to a document. But that aside... It's the substance of the document that's got a lot of people talking right now because this is not your father's progressive conservative party, or is it? Joining us to talk about this is Peter Grave, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good, good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about substance on this and and the the criticisms, whether they're valid or not, of Patrick Brown. And he he was always telling us that I'll allay those fears when you see this document. Uh, are, are, are those that were questioning and doubting Patrick Brown, uh, are they satisfied after they've seen this document? Well, if they're doubting him, they probably, you know, were wanting to doubt him, and so they'll have more reasons to doubt him, I guess. Uh, I mean, you know, on one hand, it does really set out uh, his platform for the next election, so it's clear how he's going to run. 
and the sorts of commitments he's making to Ontarians. So, I mean, he he's quite clear, for instance, you know, that he's going to bring in a carbon tax and in response to that reduce, uh, uh, you know, income taxes uh, through to the middle uh, income bracket, kind of similar to what we saw federally. You know, there's a number of specific commitments in areas like mental health and child care. So, I mean, it's pretty uh, clear that he's putting forward a vision for the Conservative Party that's different than the one that uh, Tim Hudak ran on last time. It's much less about cutting back the state, um, really more about bringing in uh, a carbon tax and engaging in some very specific investments. So, you know, in that sense, uh, he has dealt with the criticisms that he's not clear about what he's doing. Uh, I think people, though, who are kind of doubting uh, Patrick Brown will have plenty to point to in this as well. I mean, here's someone who ran as a... uh, a federal uh, conservative in against Stéphane Dion talking about the green shift and the carbon tax as this great fraud, as a new tax on Canadians, and yet that's pretty much exactly what he's proposing at the centerpiece of this platform. So, you know, if people who kind of question his sincerity or whether what he says today you can trust is what he's going to be saying after he gets elected, I suspect there's plenty of things that can be pulled out of this uh, platform and, and used against him as well. Peter, why the sea change in policy and in philosophy, really, for the PCs? Well, yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, it looks a bit like a conservative party we might have known in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, is it your father's conservative party? I guess it depends how old you are, how old <laughs> your dad is. But uh, yeah, certainly not the philosophy of the Mike Harris years uh, or subsequently. And so, I mean, again, there's two ways, I guess, you could look at this. Uh, On the one hand, you could say it's a kind of form of opportunism, that the Conservatives haven't been able to win on a harder right-wing platform, and so they're tacking towards the centre. You know, the other way of looking at it is to say, well, it's kind of responsabilization of the the Conservative Party. They recognise how Ontarians are living in the moment uh, and realise that tax cuts aren't really the solution to people's problems in many ways, and that they have to come up with conservative solutions to, to those real problems. And so if you could take something like child care, for instance, you know, they say, well, yeah, a lot of Ontarians, most Ontarian families with young kids have both parents working. They need access to quality care if they're going to be able to, to achieve that. So rather than trying to move us back to a period where we had stay-at-home uh, parents, let's find something that works with them, but that's more conservative. And so rather than uh, moving forward with what we made a scene in the province of Quebec in terms of actually having the province work hard within the nonprofit sector to create spaces and subsidize those. He's, he's going to provide uh, an enhanced child care expense deduction to, to parents. And so, you know, it's a kind of conservative approach, putting it in the hands of parents, maybe being less concerned about questions of quality uh, of care. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, responding to the fact that you, you can't just wish us back to an old form of family. You have to deal with where families are. So, it's hard to know how much of it's opportunistic, how much of it is really saying, well, let's find conservative solutions to the real problems facing Ontarians. And, and there's the balance, and I guess one of the major questions, uh, when you, you look at where Patrick Brown was, especially, as you mentioned, Peter, when he was a federal member of Parliament, uh, and now where he is now, this is a guy that voted against uh, the Civil Marriage Act uh, when that was before Parliament, uh, a number of other initiatives about LGBTQ issues, uh, and now he's marching in the parade in Toronto, he's advocating for rights for those groups right now. Uh, is it opportunistic, or is this uh, just a guy who is who has evolved, who has grown? We we don't really know the answer to that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it maybe reflects how we as voters uh, have kind of unfair standards for politicians, right? Whereas on the one hand, uh, you know, we say, oh, they're being opportunistic if they change their mind. On the other hand, we get upset when we say they never change their mind. <laughs> they always stick to where they are. They don't listen to us, the voters, when we tell them that we don't like with what they're doing. Uh, so, I mean, in a way, we may be holding uh, Patrick Brown to an unfair standard, but it's true that, 
you know, in the changes that he's made, he's never really explained why he did what he did in the past or what's led him to change his mind. And again, that means for people following him, they don't have much of a narrative about why, you know, in the context of 10 years, he's gone from thinking, you know, a carbon tax is, you know, the job-killing carbon tax is going to be the bane of our existence to, you know, this is in fact the way forward and it enables us to, uh, you know, reduce income taxes, which again, you know, is what Stéphane Dion was saying. Maybe he wasn't the, the proper uh, person to sell it in uh, 2008, but, uh, you know, nine years later, it's a bit odd to find Patrick Brown on the other side of that. The other element to this, of course, is when you see how this has evolved right now, what's this doing to the dynamic uh, with the upcoming election? Uh, it seems to me as if all three political parties are, are, are starting to move towards the center now. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess political parties try to figure out where the voters are, right? I mean, part of it, they're trying to shape the electorate and give them choices. So, you know, the Conservatives want to say, well, here's a, a Conservative vision for Ontario. But at the same time, they do have to respond to where voters are at. Uh, and it seems that, you know, Ontario voters... You know, maybe not happy with the government that's been there for 14 years. So they have a concern that it's getting a bit too comfortable, not really listening to them. But uh, maybe they aren't looking for uh, the big fights that will come with a radical change. And so the parties do do make that move. I mean, it does make the situation a bit diffi- more difficult, I think, for Kathleen Wynne, who was hoping that she could rerun you know, the, the, the traditional liberal campaign of saying, look at these scary conservatives, anyone who doesn't want these scary conservatives to get elected, come with me. And that was her way to really take votes from the NDP. With Patrick Brown taking this position, it's certainly going to be harder for her to develop that narrative that electing Patrick Brown would somehow uh, you know, bring an end to a series of uh, programs or policies that Ontarians value or would greatly change uh, you know, the way we run the province or that we'd be back to the late 1990s with all the social conflict that was around uh, the, the changes made by the Harris government. Well, therein lies the problem, and the, the devil is always in politics, is in the details. I mean, you know, Mike Harris made all sorts of promises, too, about reducing spending, reducing taxes, and, uh, and you know, a lot of people in this province bought into it until they realized that he was doing it by downloading a lot of services onto your property taxes and cutting hospital funding, etc. I know, yes, I know, I know, I'm going to get emails from conservative supporters. No, he did. Yeah, he did. Uh, then he raised it again after a couple of years, uh, not as much as it had been before. So on and on it goes. So it's not a matter of what he's promising to do. I guess what we're looking for now is some detail as to how he's going to do it. And that, you don't really ever get that in these sorts of documents, though, do you, Peter? No, and and so I mean, certainly one could criticize uh, you know a number of parts of it where you know somehow we're going to uh, deal with issues in the hospitals, uh, but how is not really clear, or will improve test scores for our students in math. Well, how? And so, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, if one wanted to, one could ask a lot of questions. And, I, I mean, it's good that we ask these of our politicians, but, again, you're right that if we look at any of these documents, they're trying to cover everything that a government might do in about 30 pages. And so, yeah, there isn't a lot of detail around uh, a number of the uh, proposals, and uh, I suspect we could take most of them, just like we could take most of those coming out of the Liberals or the NDP and begin to pick them apart and say, well, wait a second, does, this doesn't entirely make sense. You know, I mean, similarly, there's cases where he suggests he's going to reduce hydro rates by another 12% on top of the 25% promised by Kathleen Wynne. Again, without saying, well, wait a second, you'd criticize Kathleen Wynne for that 25% cut, saying she was simply pushing the debt off into future generations. She was moving costs into the future. And yet the baseline for the conservative proposal is precisely that one that they were just criticizing. So there's that aspect, too, where, where our parties really don't have a lot of capacity to do in-depth policy work. And so when they craft one of these platforms, the easiest uh, approach is to say, well, let's take what the sitting government put in their last economic statement 
and work with those numbers. But it does mean that you do take on a number of things that those governments have promised to do, which, you know, you've just been saying has been the most, you know, this great fraud or pushing uh, debts onto our kids and so on. And so there are ways in which uh, they don't always uh, really deal with issues in a fully uh, open, honest, and transparent manner. As a, to that point, though, it seems as if the only really contentious issue uh, that he's been consistent with is criticism, and, and, and after that, of course, the policy that was announced the other day is about the minimum wage. He still maintains that he's not going to go through with the next uh, phase of that and leave it at $14 an hour. But you're right. Most of the other things you've talked about are variations on the same policies that the Gwynn government has brought forward. Yeah, or trying to push a bit further in things like mental health yeah. or child care. Yeah, I mean, I think the other big difference is that, I mean, Kathleen Wynne has uh, committed uh, Ontario to a cap-and-trade system to try and uh, control carbon emissions, and he's uh, pushing us to a carbon tax, uh, which also then allows him to say, well, I'll take the revenues coming in from that and apply that to lowering uh, people's income taxes. So I think that would be the other uh, big part of, of distinction. I mean, there's some other things which I don't, where I don't think Kathleen Wynne is willing to go. Maybe it's the wisdom of having been in power for the number of years or, or the lack of daring that results from that. But uh, certainly around questions of transit and the idea of trying to find ways of financing municipal expenses uh, through the province where we have a lower rate of interest and, and free up the capacity to act in that way, uh, you know, there's a bit of creativity as well that, uh, you know, again, it remains to be seen whether it would actually be feasible uh, or, you know, necessarily a workable idea, but certainly it would be worth considering if that would be a way of improving our capacity to build things by making better use of our borrowing capacity. Policy is always going to be big in election campaigns, but so is charisma, so are personalities. And uh, the numbers are rather interesting, Peter. I mean, the last couple of polls I've seen here actually show the Liberals with a slight lead over the Progressive Conservatives here in Ontario. But when it comes to leadership and the individuals, uh, Kathleen Wynne is in the sub-basement right now, and Patrick Brown not a whole lot better, and then Andrew Horvath is leading. Uh, do, do we take that and extrapolate that into a, a swing here to a different party right now? I mean, I think the biggest challenge for Brown right now is that the surveys that have been done indicate that a majority of Ontarians either don't know him or are just not blown away by what they do know about him. Well, so, I mean, it'll be interesting what comes out of this push. I mean, certainly this gives a bit of a wave to the Conservative Party. Uh, some people will be looking a bit more closely at the Conservatives as a result of this push. And so yeah, it is really the chance for the Conservatives to introduce him uh, to Ontarians, because it's true, when you get into an election campaign, it's getting rather late. I mean, it's it's it's, it's surprising to me, really, that the Liberals haven't done more to try and introduce uh, Patrick Brown to Ontarians, but in their own way. Uh, you know, it may be that they realize uh, Ontarians are skeptical enough of their own party that they, you know, it would look bad for them if they were to begin to run negative ads. But I, I could presume that, you know, out of this uh, platform, the Liberals would be trying to fashion a number of criticisms about, well, you didn't know what Patrick Brown stood for, but now you do, and here's this awful thing he's proposing. Uh, so I suspect that will be a bit of, of where the Liberals might go. But you're right. I mean, Patrick Brown hasn't done a wonderful job of introducing himself to Ontarians. It's hard because Ontarians aren't watching that closely, and, and he hadn't been very clear about what he was going to stand for. But now that he has this out, I guess it's his opportunity to begin to, to deliver that and see whether he can improve uh, his acceptability, if you like, with the Ontarian electorate. The, the, the way that these are, are the, all three parties, of course, are starting to play this out right now, I find to be fascinating because obviously they want to create some differences, yet at the same time, I think your point is well taken that uh, the the voice they're hearing from the Ontario electorate right now is, you know, we're kind of comfortable in the middle. Uh, don't stray too far from that. 
Yeah, maybe it's comfortable in the middle. I think Ontarians actually are feeling really stressed. <laughs> I think they, you know, their, their incomes haven't been doing great. Their public services are holding up, but you can kind of begin to see them cracking a bit at the edges. Uh, but they don't really know the way forward. I don't think they're ready to trust in some kind of miracle solution. And in some ways they're saying, we're so burdened, we can't deal with, you know, uh, some kind of a big change, you know, that likely won't pay off and certainly will impose further costs on us. And so, I mean, it may be it's comfort, but I think in some ways it's actually a feeling of stress and not wanting uh, the world of provincial politics to add to that stress, trying to find a way to keep things more or less on an even keel. So, you know, the the decisions you've made about how you're going to keep going, the strategies you've made, you can kind of stick to them. You don't have to renegotiate them because suddenly public policy has shifted in a big way in this province. Part of the promise that uh, that he, Brown talked about on the weekend, uh, Peter, of course, was uh, he, he mentioned five pillars that, of course, in this plan and the People's Guarantee and said if he doesn't meet any of them or some of them, that he will not run for re-election. Not the first time we've heard a politician say that. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody that's actually ever followed through on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, in a way, it's hard to know how one of those promises pays off, because I think, for many people, they share your skepticism. They hear that, and it actually, rather than making them think, oh, these promises might be achieved, they begin thinking, well, how's this guy going to try and get out of that? It's a bit like Houdini in, a, in one of his jackets. You know, the question is like, how is he going to escape that? And so, in some ways, it's almost preparing uh, Ontarians to expect that the promises won't be delivered and making that promise. It's, a, it's kind of a weird place we are, where making promises like that, in some ways, uh, increases uh, the skepticism of voters as opposed to reduces it. On the other hand, some people, you know, if they're looking for a reason to believe, then maybe that gives them the reason to believe, you know, as much as... Uh, is sort of the triumph of hope over experience of saying, well, maybe this time actually we will see a change because he's put his job on the line. Always a pleasure, Peter. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. Take care. Peter Gray, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.